I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Site Visibility. With me today are JP Coolwine and Wolfgang Schoeffer. And we are going to be discussing lessons in Uber branding. And that's Uber as in cool, not as in Uber, the rideshare company. No one wants to talk about them anymore. We've, t- we've spoken about those enough. So today it's going to be lessons in Uber branding. And this really follows on from the co-authoring of the book that JP and Wolfgang have put together, which is Brand Elevation lessons in uber branding before we get into the detail of today's episodes and define what an uber brand is and how to grow an uber brand wolfgang jp do you want to introduce yourselves to our listeners and what you do at your respective companies sure my name's jp kuhlwein that's spelled with a ue just like uber brands and really goes beyond cool as hopefully you'll note uh, as we go along in this interview it's really about being meaningful. And we played off Nietzsche a little bit there with the Ubermensch, but I'm sure we'll get into that. My name is JP Kuhlwein. Um, I teach brand strategy at Columbia and NYU. I'm writing books with Wolfgang and I'm consulting also together with him from time to time on how to elevate brands. And in a previous life, I worked for a long, long time, 25 odd years at Procter & Gamble and some other brands. I'm Wolf Schaefer. That's not an UE, but an AE. So close enough, runner up. Um, uh, I am, uh, yeah, I've, I'm, I've worked almost as long as, as JP. Um, <laughs> almost as old as him. Yes. But I've both worked mostly as a, um, global strategic consultant for agencies with agencies and in that function with most global players um, over the years, largely in uh, fashion, beauty and prestige um, industries uh, for the likes of like LVMH or Procter, actually, which is how JP and I met or Cody, Mila, Swarovski, you name them. Now I have founded two years ago, just right before Corona, I started my own company, Solf Consulting based in Berlin and New York where I keep on doing the same for the next 25. And I think you just touched on it there. One of my questions was going to be, you know, to write a book on your own is a really hard task to co-author a book. And just to be able to work with someone on that level takes a great relationship and typically a long relationship. So how did you both start working together? And where did this this common ground in learning and being fascinated by Uber brands come from? Well, it's a strange relationship if um, me being in New York and Wolfgang being in Berlin tells you anything. (laughs) (laughs) But um, we've met quite a while ago. Wolfgang, you want to tell the story? Um, actually, yeah, sure. It started, um, when PNG, when JP was still at PNG and I was working for an agency called Select World, who was, which was one of the uh, roster agencies of PNG working largely on their prestige beauty lines, hair care particularly. And JP had the challenge from, from then CEO, um, how to improve PNG's chances on succeeding in Uber in, in premium categories, or actually how to even succeed at all, um, because in the past they 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 tried very often but never really quite made it, not to the extent that other companies could. And so, uh, JP started out this project, and uh, 
then con contacted us as one of the agency partners experienced in, in prestige and premium beauty particularly. And so that's how we started working on it. And we put together something for P&G. And then eventually we thought like, well, why don't we can, why don't we use the research that we've done already and enlarge that and take that further? And, and that's how the book um, came about. So it's Sorry. been about how long is it now? It's been a, a good decade or longer, um, you know, in the making and the project seems to never end. <laughs> yeah. Actually, we just today, we talked about the next book, um, <laughs> and what we need to start for it. Because like, yes, it, it, it and it, it, it happens organically, just like the first book came out of the project for PNG and the second book then out of projects that happened because of the first book where, um, clients asked us to, to write down the process that we took with them to help others kind of understand how to actually go about building a brand. So the second one's much, second book is much more focused on practical steps, how to go about building a brand. So now the, the new one that we started talking about is probably going to go into a research trying to understand how to use performance marketing, particularly in the future to, to brand as you sell and not just sell um, and destroy the brand. Yes. And a constant request also, how do you apply this in B2B? So that might also be a theme to look at. Yeah, I'm sure you stumble across all of these kind of trends in Uber branding and think, oh, that could make a book. But actually, that leads me nicely to my next question, which was, so if I've understood it correctly, you've been working together roughly for around a decade there. But when when did the idea come up to actually write a book on the topic? Um, really, I mean, it, it was triggered by the financial crisis, believe it or not. And it's interesting to see also parallels with the current crisis. But uh, what we saw when I was at P&G during the financial crisis was we had expected that people would, you know, scrimp more and that that's the explanation why they might buy less Pantene or Lay or whatever other brands uh, P&G was marketing. And it was interesting to see even more then than before already that there are brands that people have so much passion for that they find them not only peerless, i.e. one of a kind in the category, but also priceless, i.e. they're willing to dig quite deep into their wallets. And econ uh, economists would call it irrational, you know, spending that kind of money on the famous lipstick, but also, you know, on ice cream, flour, salt, you name it, way beyond luxury product. And so we became very curious, uh, you know, what causes this desirability of, let's say, a Cirque du Soleil, a mini car, an Nespresso coffee, or uh, the classics like Louis Vuitton, etc., and found a lot of things that they do uh, very similarly, that a lot of principles they follow, whether consciously or subconsciously. And I'm interested to know your respective roles in co-authoring the book. So as I as I alluded to just a moment ago, to write a book alone is difficult, but to co-author a book, you've got to work out the project plan, who covers what aspects of it, and then you've both, both got to meet respective deadlines and actually, I, I imagine, motivate each other throughout that process. So can, can either of you reveal how that process worked between you both? Yeah, motivate in the best of times. <laughs> Demotivate most other times. No, it's uh, no, it's it, it, well, as in as in I guess in any relationship, it's not always easy, and it, mm -hmm. it takes a it takes a lot of work. Uh, no, but I, I think in our case it, it worked quite well because of our different backgrounds. So the, the, it, we complemented each other in some ways or shape. Uh, JP with a strong business background, me more with a communication brand building background and strategic background. So I having more of a tendency to be the writer and the um, developer thinks JP to be the one, the researcher and to finding the practical case studies, analyzing them and then taking them forward. Yeah, that is really interesting. And how long did that process take? Is, was that developing over the over 10 years or was this condensed to a certain period within the last 10 years? Well, really, it's a it's a continuous process. So we started with mm. that study and we were fortunate that we had quite a few people actually involved in that. And so we quite quickly were able to amass quite a big database, if you like, and build up our gut, as you might call it. And then it's really as you parse out the model, you're looking for more evidence or you find that maybe you were not onto something. 
uh, and you refine it. I would say the first phase, probably a year or two, and then it took us a good more two to three other years to finalize the first book. And then the second book almost started immediately, just as now the third book is already kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, swimming around there in our conversations, you know, started almost immediately. And so you could say, you know, it took another three to five years to put the second one together. Yeah, the, the thing that's, that, that, that makes it even more difficult and, and thus also sometimes a little longer in the process is that we're living in pretty um, um, changing times and as far as marketing is concerned. You know, there's lots of things made be the discussion on purpose and, um, and how marketing can create more meaning again, but also then the whole digitalization. So there's always something new happening and it happening very, very fast. And so as you're writing something, there's new ideas or new perspectives coming in that you want to incorporate, of course, as much as possible. Right. So like the last book, for instance, then on top of those two things came COVID. And um, so we, we we started then, which funnily enough, as, as, as JP said, like the first book started out of a crisis. Now, the second one was also born during a crisis, a different one, but it also made us realize the strength of Weber Brands in a whole different manner again during right. the times, you know, and... So it, it, it is, it is a basically a living organism that, that isn't done until it's printed. And even then, not anymore these days because it's all digit print, you know. <laughs> and then, and then we always need to be careful because there's a lot of imposters, if you like, a lot of pretenders, uh, and things become fashionable. So, you know, obviously, you know, a brand having a purpose, super fashionable, a, pa a, a brand jumping onto some social, uh, ecological cause or even, you know, stating that it um, makes its product in sustainable ways, very fashionable. And so what we need to do and what we pride ourselves in doing is to look through those facades and really look at those brands that really have it in their DNA. And that's quite a bit of work, but quite proud to say that, you know, the brands we talk about in our first books, um, are still surviving and, and thriving today, which in today's environment is quite a feat, you know, because we probably looked at them for the first time six, seven years ago, and they're still doing well. That's a, a fascinating segue into a section of this podcast I wanted to discuss, which is the definition of Uber brands. And you've just touched on something really interesting there, which I don't think I've touched so much on this podcast. I've, I've spoken a lot on this podcast about the the modern approach to branding and leading with purpose. But you just touched on something there, which is the, it's more the superficial nature. It feels like some brands out there are, are aware that we are in a new era of advertising, a new era of marketing, one that has to be purpose led. But there is a difference between the superficial approach to being purpose led. And then, as you said, it being within your DNA. So it's a long-winded question, but in a roundabout way, I just want to ask, what's your definition of an Uber brand? Our latest book is actually all about, or which is the key change. Traditionally, marketing was always driven by finding market gaps, looking at the market or as your potential consumers, understanding what they need and what they don't have, and then cater to them. So it's, it's by definition opportunistic. Mm -hmm. And, um, we're saying that these days it's actually the other way around. So marketing is kind of like being turned on its head or as we think on its feet by being much more conviction driven, driven and thus building brands with genuineness and with truth inside out. So really starting to think what, what do you want to stand for? What do you believe in? And then build your organization first and foremost, which we call do, and then go into interaction and into what's classically called marketing. So brands aren't anymore just marketing instruments as they used to be. Brands are really the spear hats or the guiding, um, uh, guiding ideas of the enterprise as a whole, uh, driving everything inside right. out. Right. And then when we talk about Uber brands in the book, we say there's three kind of phases. You could also look at them as dimensions that Uber brands have in common and that they dig into. And that is they dream, they do, they dare, as we call it. And, and it's the dreaming, if you like, that is all about this mission, uh, this finding a purpose that you asked about earlier. And uh, it goes beyond, you know, some 
declaration, some corporate social responsibility and associated sustainability report or something like that. It really comes from within. I think that is the the key differentiator, like Wolfgang says. And it's interesting that in times of crisis or change or new technologies or developments, it's those brands that are able to really draw out the appropriate use and interpretation of those technologies or response to the crisis because they are so deeply aware of who they are. So an example that I love because I've become a baker like so many other people during the pandemic is, you know, King Arthur Flower. This this brand has been around a long time in the U.S. It's one of the oldest brands actually in existence in the U.S. And it's always been dedicated to the baker in its structure as an organization. It is led by several CEOs who are all bakers. Uh, in what it does, it has, of course, a baking school and it, it quickly adopted the internet in further spreading the gospel of how wonderful it is to be able to feed yourself, particularly with the most basic of goods, which is bread, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was no coincidence, actually, and it was not following a trend when it was right there when people found meaning in baking and kind of, you know, turning to their own nutrition. So these brands really come to the fore because they shine from the inside out. And that's where the big difference is versus another nutritional or food product that all of a sudden jumps on the bandwagon and says, I'm also organic. I'm also about, you know, giving you wholesome nutrition and I'm called Kellogg's cornflakes or something of that nature. And perhaps to go back to, to the actual question that you had before, before we. What was it? <laughs> about actually Uber brand. So what, like the name came to us. Well, for, number one, because we, we saw that this happens not just in luxury categories or with luxury or high price brands, but also in categories that are traditionally seen as everyday goods and uh, where you can still ch- uh, have a premium margin, but at a much lower price point. People would never think of it as prestige or as luxury, but it is actually acting like uh, at the same level. So that's why we wanted to look, we're looking for a name that goes beyond the existing ones. And Uber really came to us because, um, if, for those of you who are, um, uh, familiar with Nietzsche, um, Swiss German philosopher, uh, sometimes abused, um, in certain times of our history, but, um, famous for coming up with the, uh, the concept of the Übermensch, uh, uh, where the idea was that these are people that are inter- internally driven, not following any social norms or any existing regulations or, or, um, boundaries, but really thinking for themselves and thus creating or taking society forward as they go. And that um, is kind of what these brands do. And that's why we call them Uber brands. Also, because in doing that, they take themselves way above and beyond all the other brands and uh, the, the the price wars that exist, et cetera. Right. And in a way, we practice what we preach there because insisting on calling it Uber brands was a terrible fight with our British publisher because they said, no way in hell, nobody can pronounce it. Uh, it has a tainted history, at least its interpretation by some, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's just what Uber brands are all about as well, uh, because, you know, a, a purpose is only one truly if it costs you, as we say in the book, you know. So so all these lip services I quickly found out or at best become trends that kind of fade and puff away after a short time. But, um, you know, if you're really into it, it also costs you. And, and particularly in today's kind of transparent digital world, that's what people increasingly value is to see that you're not only talking about, you know, social justice, but you are let's say Ben and Jerry's, who actually invests money, energy, and sometimes being boycotted as a brand into that mission you're pursuing. So a a key thing that stands out to me from what you were both saying there is that we've moved from being opportunistic to be internally driven to become an Uber brand. That's what it requires. Mm -hmm. And as you're talking this through, I'm thinking to create a business, to create a profitable business, just a profitable business alone, you can be opportunistic still. But it sounds like the difference between just a profitable business 
and an Uber brand, something that's here for the long run that actually gives meaning to people's lives comes from being internally driven. So I guess, do you think that for longevity in today's business world, you need to be internally driven and that you think opportunistic brands really don't stand a chance when it comes to 20, 30 years down the line still being in existence? 20, 30 years is a long time. So who Mm. knows? (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? But in the foreseeable future, I'd say, yeah, no, they don't. And, Mm. and, and let me perhaps clarify that. Of course, when, when, when you, when you're trying to make some money and being successful, um, then you, you need to be to some degree opportunistic. Um, at least you need to be relevant or trying to make yourself relevant. And that means you cannot go against everything and everybody all the time. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's true what, what JP said, having a principle is only, you only have a principle if it costs you. So you need to be willing to forego certain potentials if they would compromise your brand and your conviction. That was always true for the good ones, but it's more and more true now for every brand uh, to be taken seriously and to be considered something that is trustworthy. If it's just marketing charade, people will see through it quicker and quicker and they're not going to buy it anymore. Right. And I often get that question because we have a paragraph in our first book about growth and how it might be different. And I get that obviously a lot from students at NYU, et cetera, which are very financially focused. Of course, you can build very profitable, opportunistic businesses. And of course, if you succeed in creating products that are totally unique and disruptive and nobody can imitate whether it's because of you know regulation or patent protection or just because you keep being at the cutting edge of technology we all know products called google or amazon or whatever that you know succeed in creating humongous businesses behind that but it's very risky because statistics show that 80 to 98% of initiatives fail that technologies age very quickly. And so it's really, really hard to keep staying at that bleeding edge. And that's where we think and observe that companies that still do fantastic products, of course, that's never in question, but also are very aware of building a brand that goes beyond the material, like the Apple or like the Amazon, okay? Uh, uh, Sorry, like the Airbnb versus the Amazon, might have longer longevity because when they get slightly challenged on price or in technology, there is so much more that people desire in these brands, mainly their meaning beyond the material that keeps their business up. And that's where we, we think at least looking at, you know, the couple of dozen, probably over a hundred in-depth case studies that we have, that that's what we see. I love this idea that to become an Uber brand, there's kind of a price to pay. There's almost like something that you have to sacrifice or an obstacle that you have to overcome is how I've interpreted that. Uh, But I'm interested to know from you both respectively, do you have any favorite examples of Uber brands and the types of obstacles or the types of prices that they've had to pay to become an Uber brand? Do you have any favorite examples of those? Yeah, so so one that we uncovered and and that's a big part of what's fun in writing books like that is to really dig in and discover all of these new brands or brands you weren't aware of but one of them is um a german brand called frosta ag now <laughs> talk about talk about something boring and probably rejected nowadays which is industrially made frozen foods and I'm doing this on purpose in, you know, kind of giving it the image that most people have today. Yeah. But Frosta was grown. It's a family company by the father. And to put a long story short, the son said, you know, I, I'm willing to take over the business, but I, I wouldn't be able to continue it like this because look, our own employees are not eating the food we're manufacturing. And so being a trained chef, and having certain beliefs, et cetera, he completely revamped this brand to say, yes, I'm still staying in the core business of frozen foods, but I want to be the one that offers honest ingredients and wholesome foods, no preservatives, 
etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and completely revamped that business. And not because he was following a trend. On the contrary, the stock price plunged. Uh, sales went down by over half, which is catastrophic, of course, uh, for this listed company because supermarkets were doubting their success. Uh, uh, it obviously came with a price increase, even if it was minor. If you think about it, a couple of cents, euro cents, it nevertheless list, uh, uh, led to a lot of delistings. But they pulled through, and today they're actually one of the most recognized, uh, active, but also respected bigger food makers in Germany. I think those are the kind of stories that that um, we're really fascinated with, how these brands then reemerge even stronger after making this investment against their high emission. You mentioned the research process there. I imagine that as you go through it, you just talked about the research process being fascinating and you stumble across brands or stories that you weren't previously familiar with. Did you spot anything in terms of the commonalities of Uber brands during the research and production of the book that going into the book you weren't previously aware of? I think it was... Well, well, let's see what, what JP thinks, but I would say it's, it's two things in particular that stood out for me anyway. The first one is the importance of the organizational setup or the internal culture. And I mean, it's often said that culture eats strategy for breakfast, but it's really true when it comes to Uber brands. Um, you have to live it inside out and that needs to be true for everybody working there. And, and in the ideal way, um, every employee should be a number one influencer out there. And a lot of brands are more and more taking that to heart, really trying to build an Airbnb being one that we discuss in our latest book, uh, where, where, um, Douglas is, has, has written all about the cultural setup at Airbnb and how important that is in order to drive a certain spirit and live it, uh, inside out. Um, that would be one thing. So the culture organizational setup. And the second thing I think that's important, um, that wasn't so clear to me until we actually did all the research is the, importance of not just developing a brand story but a brand myth i.e a story can be any kind of narrative a myth is a story that actually elevates us or connects us with our ideals or with our values as people and um, that is important for uber brands to become such is that they do connect us with something higher something that is um, that, that we aspire to May that be in terms of self-ideals or may that be in terms of values that we hold dear as a society or as a culture? Yeah, I second that. A lot of the surprising insights also come to me often through the questioning of my students. Uh, and it, it, it kind of subconsciously you understand it, but then it really comes to the fore. And one of those is when students say, well, JP, it's so wonderful, all these stories you tell us. And we know Airbnb and Apple, but we, you know, we never knew that, I don't know, uh, Ben and Jerry's, you know, is all about social justice, believe it or not. And you realize, well, you know it because you're so into it, but it's probably true that a large majority of consumers, even when it's an Apple or whatever, are totally ignorant of these causes that these brands have taken on. And then the interesting insight to me was there, it doesn't matter. It is still, it still comes across, um, when the brand presents itself at all touch points. In fact, it's one of the strengths of the brands that this guidance allows them to be very coherent at all touch points, not re repeating themselves, but being very coherent in total about what they do, what they say, what they are, how they come to life, how they manifest themselves so that when consumers want to dig deeper or when certain challenges arise, like we talked earlier, then the reaction is, hmm, I never knew this, but it makes total sense to me because it's so inherent uh, and so subjectively obvious uh, and emotionally uh, a link with its customers. And that's really the great driver. At the very basic, I tell the students, you know, Taking everything else aside, at least it's a great way to ensure consistency, which is such a challenge for brand builders that are just, you know, trying to put it together every day. 
Dude, consistency and diversity, you know, because it's, it's, it's one thing to just paint everything blue and put the same thing out ever, over and over and over again. It's another to allow for a myriad of voices to speak and yet still all say the same thing. Uh, a lie never would manage that. But also right. I'm, beyond that, it actually shields you from being uncovered uh, or having a scandal uh, always five minutes away from you because yeah. that happens to other brands. If you're not really truthfully living it inside out, you always have these days, you have to be always afraid that you're going to be right. uncovered right. and the whole thing is going to go bust. Right. Interesting. It actually answers another question that often comes up with it, but I'm a small brand. I can't afford all this advertising. And the interesting answer is that a lot of these brands that we look at that we call Uber brands, you know, the Patagonias uh, or the Frostas or whatever, they actually often have very underdeveloped advertising and media budgets compared mm. to, you know, industry standards. And that's because they're so much more able to harness uh, the voices of their employees and of what we call the Uber target, the true brand fans that are more than willing to spread, spread the gospel for them. So financially also, this can be a very attractive model, but most importantly, it creates an authentic voice versus a bought narrative, an artificially constructed narrative. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. That's a really interesting way to look at things. So essentially that internally driven ambition or that internally driven culture can pay off in the form of internal advocacy so that you don't have to invest as in as much marketing budget to convince the world externally of the things that you're trying to achieve because you already have all of your internal advocates doing it for you. Is that kind of a, uh, yeah, yeah. That correctly, yeah, internal yeah. advocacy, but then also making waves out outside, radiating from the inside outside, because yeah. it's it's creating ownership throughout the process from the employees all the way down to, through the fans and the what we call the Uber target, the closest users and the the best examples of users all the way down to your wider target. Because if it radiates truthfully and genuinely, it it does keep on making ripples in a positive manner. And I imagine students are a great source of inspiration for both ideas for the book, but also to challenge your perspectives on Uber brands. Have they been a kind of key part in the process of understanding more and changing your interpretations and perspectives on, on what Uber brands are and can be? It's interesting to see what JP says to that. Mm. Yeah, in increasingly, <laughs> actually, just yesterday, we were discussing why not let a couple of students work on some of the questions we have and see what they come up with. But yeah, definitely. I mean, as I said before, not only are they challenging you to kind of sharpen your saw, as, as we used to say, and, um, you know, find proof uh, and extend the models also to brands that you've never heard of, you know, some kind of, you know, super hip Japanese, uh, you know, yogurt brand or whatever that they've come up with, the latest one. And then, take it apart to judge whether we think this is an Uber brand or this is one of those fads uh, that's going to be gone uh, by the time they graduate. Um, so yeah, in, in, in many ways, they challenge you, they inspire you, and increasingly we're looking at whether they can only uh, also be 
collaborators in our research and our book projects. At the same time, it's true from my experience. I'm 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 teaching also at a, at a university um, here near Berlin, actually, um, a digital university, and it's it's. Um, I'm often amazed how little brand passion um, young people show. They, as JP said, there's like certain categories where you have that more than in others, like fashion or streetwear, let's say, or um, gaming and stuff, stuff like that. But they, they have very few brands that they're very engaged with or that they feel very, very passionate about. And they have a large uh, set of brands that they're, more or less are indifferent about, but deal with. But then they have a lot of other brands, and that's the interesting thing, which they do not engage with at all, or that they that they outright reject. Uh, and those, those are often the ones that, to them anyway, seem a fake. That's really interesting, because we've spoken on the podcast before, I've spoken to people that focus on working just with Generation Z and millennials, and it's been said on this podcast before that perhaps younger people have a little less loyalty to brands than maybe generations historically. And they are more easy to be swayed if they don't think an Uber brand is, I think being authentic actually is the phrase is being authentic right. and, yeah. and remaining authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And but that's also st- because I think that's also because they're being so abused. I give you a specific mm. example. You know, yeah, we yeah, talk about oh, the poor <laughs> so abused. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we talk about purpose in the class, obviously. And uh, then you find, you know, a lot of the students will have dipped into various brands. I have very specific example where one of my assistants a black woman, you know, said, I love this wine. It's made by, you know, black winters, et cetera. And it just, you know, lives this idea of black empowerment, et cetera, et cetera. And then at the end of the course, she had already kind of gotten less hot on this, realizing, you know, that there are a lot of commercial interests in there as well uh, that might contradict them. And then on the other hand, Students were really getting fascinated with some of the case studies that I gave them. For example, Freitag, this uh, bag brand in Switzerland that has been making uh, bags out of recycled uh, or upcycled uh, truck tarp. And they're fascinated because they can dig and dig and dig in lo- into a long history and into their manufacturing and their organizational structure and their compensation program and how many women work there and their carbon footprint and, 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 and it's extremely consistent. And they're almost blown away because by now they're almost gotten used to that purpose also, like previously just the TV promotion statements has become kind of a very superficial uh, promise but not something brands deliver on. So I do think that even with the youngest generation, these brands are winners once they kind of dig them, quite literally. Uh, you mentioned different streetwear brands then. I think earlier you mentioned Louis Vuitton. And I'm really curious about the differences between luxury brands and then Uber brands, because I imagine as kind of a Venn diagram, there are some commonalities between the two, but they are very clearly different in terms of talking about opportunistic and it being internally driven. And then also the difference between being a brand that exists for meaning and the brand that exists for profit. But could you maybe describe your, I guess your personal thoughts towards the differences between luxury brands and Uber brands. And do you think luxury brands will suffer as a result of this growth in Uber brands and us and as consumers, us looking for more meaning behind the companies that we're purchasing from? Well, so the whole research and the whole project basically started by us trying to understand uh, prestige, premium, or luxury brands, mm, uh, yeah. whichever way you want to call them. Uh, and, and of course, there's there's a gradation between those three, but um, they all being priced above um, the average. And um, so, so initially, that's what we focused on, and that's when, when once we understood that what we discovered um, were um, brands weren't, weren't necessarily held to those traditional categories or price points that one associates with the term luxury. That's when we tried to, when we came up with the term of Uber brands. So a lot of luxury brands 
actually are Uber brands, but not all luxury brands are Uber brands. Uh, just to give you an example, Hermes, for instance, is a an absolute Uber brand because um, they have from the get-go, largely because they can afford it, because their family help and have been successful uh, successful over, centru- over centuries, they have always stuck to their um, their principles and have limited their business or have forfeited growth or uh, potential uh, success if if they weren't able to do it to the standards that they had set to for themselves. Not the least, for instance, making sure that they're being bought by LVMH. On the other hand, there's luxury brands, especially in some categories, like for instance, watches or also in accessories. And I don't want to bash any brands, but let's just to think of Michael Kors or Coach or something, uh, which were brands that never really uh, built an authentic and a credible base inside out and strength, but that kind of created a quick bonfire that as quickly also um, went to the ashes. So um, there's, um, yeah, I, I, I'd say 80%, 70, 60, 70, 80% of, of luxury brands, of true luxury brands are also Uber brands, but there's lots of Uber brands that are not because they don't live to those principles. They just sell themselves very expensively. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there's absolutely, I, I think there is a key difference in that when you look at the classic luxury brand strategy models, it is about the P's, and in this case, not the classic marketing piece, but it's about provenance, precious material, high price so that you're exclusive by cutting out people. You know, who can afford a pen that costs $50,000? Not so many people. But to us, that can be a very artificially and ultimately rejected way of making yourself desirable, even for the people who can afford that pen. And that is when that is all there is to them. There is no other meaning in this Versus an Hermes where, you know, they're very high prices, of course, but it's all about celebrating and living and preserving the art of the craft. It's quite different from taking any odd project, uh, object and just putting a couple of diamonds on and making it worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. So one of the key differences that I, in a quick explanation to people is, you know, it's not only about precious materials and high prices to lock people out. The differentiation and the desirability of an Uber brand can very much come at an intellectual level, at a level of what we would label sophistication, i.e. you know about something, you know about how to use something, you know about rituals associated with a brand, you recognize it versus other people, you go through a length and not only putting out a lot of money to get it, that is what makes an Uber brand that you might not find in a blatant kind of luxury proposition. That's really interesting. And so do you think that that means a change to consumer behavior over time and that perhaps, whereas previously consumers may have paid a premium for exclusivity, do you think we're in an era where consumers are willing to pay a premium for meaning? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, like... Exclusive, you can't uphold exclusivity anymore anyway, anyway. So that's why we're saying it needs to be somewhere between longing and belonging. So you need mm. to, you need to fuse inclusivity and exclusivity by tiering, for instance, excess. So there's still, at the end of the day, of course, you're still going to spend money for identity building brands because you want to set yourself apart. But at the same time, of course, you can't uphold this, as, as JP already said, these artificial um, means of, of, uh, creating exclusivity by, uh, you know, pricing people out or literally not letting them into the store or speaking a language that nobody understands. You need to become more inclusive because everything else would be seen as discriminatory and, um, uh, exclusive gets a very bad ring these days, mm-hmm. but yet you still need to find a way to, create aspiration and and that means setting yourself apart from others and that happens much more through knowledge through truth and thus through meaning now i think there's there's one thing we need to acknowledge which is 
as consumers evolve as consumers, you know, particularly when you look at emerging markets uh, it, 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 where I've worked for a long time, India, China, etc., you can see that there is a stage very early on where kind of blatant expression of your newfound riches, for example, classic brands, classic luxury brands, these blatant luxury brands we talked about can serve as a quick means to do that. But very quickly, you know, after you've had all the big logos and you show off your, you know, golden Mont Blanc watch and you have your whatever uh, luxury car, then people are desperately looking for finer ways of differentiating and expressing their personality and their beliefs. And that's when we get into these maturing markets or into the highly educated markets, into the old me- uh, 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 money segments, et cetera, et cetera, that are a large, large chunk of uh, uh, brand consumption where you need to offer more than just diamonds on a pig. Yeah, the, or, the, was it li- or was it lipstick on a pig? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, well, and, and not to say that glitz and glam and bling can't can't have their time and can't have their fun. But Absolutely. In the long, in, in the long run, uh, yes, it's it's going to be a shining or radiating from the inside and and a, and a good glow that will get you further and let you live longer. I'm really interested to know your respective purchasing behaviors yourself as, con- <laughs> as consumers. So you go through this, you do all of this research and you're so conscious of the things that make up Uber brands and the decisions behind purchasing behavior. Does that change your purchasing behavior? Well, it's no. very easy. Um, Wolfgang is a fashion victim. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, whatever glows, whatever glows, he will like a fly. He will fly to and show off and show off his latest acquisitions. <laughs> no, I'm I'm only half joking. I let him talk first, and then I'll respond. Go for it. I wouldn't call myself a fashion victim but i'd call myself style conscious perhaps <laughs> <laughs> i'm aware that um that that it's uh, only the, the 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 expression that counts and shows the the essence to some degree uh, yes i i i do i don't think i changed my shopping behavior uh, throughout the process and through with all the findings rather i refined it perhaps so certain things i i like more than others even and i always liked them but now i like them really and others i lost interest in but uh, yeah i think that's how it is but the the only other thing is uh, going back to what you asked earlier by the way is um this idea of luxury being becoming more democratic mm. and and price really losing its relevance so a lot i mean it, it's been often said that luxury is subjective and some 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 person's luxury is is like a banality for someone else but um i think people are more and more really creating their own personal luxuries and that can be just a wonderful yogurt for for one and for the other it is the birken bag or something you know so it it really it's being defined more and more subjectively and across categories and price points and and that's what i see happening with me as well yeah and that that's, that's something again where wolfgang and i complement each other i'm not at all uh, a very trend conscious person, but I have my areas where I'm very willing to splurge and also take pride in ownership. Uh, mm. What I have to say has changed is that now I do consciously invest, i.e. purposefully pay more money for companies that I've now, through a lot of the research, have found out are trying to do the right thing, particularly by their employees and their workers. So I find myself doing very simple things like grab aforementioned King Arthur flower in the supermarket. Uh, Even though it does cost double, it's still nothing in absolute, obviously. But I do grab it. And the main driver, I think, now is that I say they do well. They are a B corporation. They're employee-owned. They pay fair wages. They've stayed in the U.S. And that's worth something to me now where that might not have been so conscious and, and, and so action driving before. Does that, does that want to go beyond minor purchases and everyday stuff to, let's say, real things? Um, is that a question for me, Wolfgang? Yeah. 
Well, I, you, you often point out to me and us, uh, uh, our family here that we are, I, I think, I, I think I can say this somewhat objectively, consciously living way below our means. So there are not a lot of quote unquote big purchases that we plunge into. But talking about that, yes, for example, we said if we're going to finally buy a new car and, and, Probably by then having to give away our clunker, our family clunker, we <laughs> might then splurge, you know, to really go into an electric car. But I'm not yet sure it's going to be a Tesla because I'm a little skeptical, actually, about the ulterior <laughs> motives or drivers behind that brand. As you were talking there, you mentioned how maybe your feelings have changed and you use the word before. And I didn't know there whether you were referencing the pandemic and in a roundabout way, my question was going to be, do you think that this aspect of business empathy that we seem to have about wanting to reward and wanting to purchase and being willing to pay a premium or willing to pay more for the businesses that we care about, do you think that's been accelerated because of the pandemic or do you think it would have happened anyway? I think it was happening already. Not sure if it was accelerated, perhaps in some instances, but mm. I, I, I'm, I'm always hesitant because these things like, Oh God, nothing's going to be after COVID as it was before. You know, I've heard that so often throughout my now longer and longer life. Uh, people are people and they forget very quickly and they don't change that dramatically. So I think, uh, yeah, perhaps certain things have been slightly accelerated but by and large i can also see us after covid going back to having fun and party and not be so serious and conscious anymore as we were now for the last year but in the long run i do think that people buy more for meaning and for credibility and authenticity versus for bling but again we can see a backlash now after covid yeah, I think it's also an aging question. I mean, uh, Wolfgang alluded that, you know, by now you've lived through a couple of crises, you made the experiences. I also read quite recently that the generation that feels most like coming closer to knowing what the meaning of their life is, is usually the people 55 and older. And I think it comes from, you know, a lot of experience. And with that experience, I think valuing things like companies that treat their employees right, I think it comes with having accumulated your own working experience and followed politics and society for quite a while. It might not be the first thing that a teenager finds relevant, for example. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, I can't remember who was talking about it, but you were talking about the the characteristics or what leads to you uh, losing appeal for an Uber brand or losing interest in an Uber brand. And we talked a lot about growth and what an Uber brand is, but I wanted to close out the episode with, with that really. How do Uber brands lose that status? What are some of the things that you've seen, the trends, the commonalities between Uber brands where they reach a pinnacle, but perhaps then they lose that drive or they lose that meaning and what contributes to that? Okay, I can I can give you my three <clears throat> aspects that I think can leave uh, lead to the death of an Uber brand. To uh, phrase it a bit more dramatically, <laughs> but um, uh, then JP can give you some examples. Um, I'd say number one, of course, it is um, being found out to be a fake. So if indeed we 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 say in our first book, it takes a long lot to build up the dream but you can easily burst the bubble. So you need to be very mindful, as we said now throughout, to build something solidly from the inside out. And because otherwise it's, it can go to shatters in a, in a nanosecond. Just one scandal is enough. And we just see that happening on Peloton again. Uh, it happened already two years ago or a year and a half ago, and now it's happening again. So Peloton, be aware. Um, number two, I think, uh, so beyond being the true, being truthful, overextension uh, was always, um, uh, a danger for any brand, uh, particularly for those building, uh, being built through aspiration. Uh, as we said, it is important these days to unite exclusivity with inclusivity. So growth isn't necessarily the, uh, the, the antithesis of, of, of luxury or of Uber brands anymore, but, uh, but you still need to be careful. Uh, tear yourself and be very mindful of your growth and don't overextend yourself. Don't be everything to everybody everywhere. 
again, hold up your convictions and your standards. And uh, if that means forfeiting certain businesses, then do that. And number three, um, I forgot now, what was that? Growth, a scandal, and... Um, Getting boring, not refreshing. Exactly, exactly. Number three was challenge yourself, surprise yourself. Don't don't exactly define yourself a qua position and say, like, this is who we are and this is our purpose, but make your purpose one that constantly keeps on challenging you, putting your brand on a trajectory rather than on a clear set terrain so that you always are alive and move forward and move ahead and take us with us, inspires. See, we read each other's thoughts by now. Um, um, so, I, as usual, Wolfgang gave me the job of finding those case studies. But I think it's, you know, betraying yourself is actually what we find out about daily, uh, it seems like now, with social media being such a vigilante tool. And it goes for the obvious candidates like the Audi, you know, that does a Super Bowl about, you know, women emancipation just to be found out that it has no women on its board. Yeah. But it's even more, it hurts even more for the brands like Wolfgang mentioned Peloton or Everlane or whatever that are looking to be, you know, these communities of people that share a mission or a meaning, etc. So when an Everlane, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but it's kind of a clothing company in the U.S., that says, um, you know, we're very transparent and we try to do the right thing by the environment, by the people, etc. are found out during the COVID crisis to lay off workers fast, particularly to lay off workers that want to unionize, then that can backfire even more strongly than it would have if it was a Levi's or something that doesn't declare it's, you know, for the people. So betraying yourself Overextending, I even think, I'm, I'm wondering every day now how much further even an LVMH can drive it now. Because yes, they avoided overextending by having these maisons and by having these separate units, you know, of the Louis Vuitton and the Dior and the Moet NC, etc. But by now it seems even these maisons have gotten so big that they're all doing all the same things. They all have fragrances. They all have hotels. They all have fashion. They all have accessories. So there is a distinct danger linked to the second one, which is you become the predictable, boring, and kind of omnipresent. And mm. that's where, you know, challenging and evolving over time comes in. And, you know, even a brand like Patagonia, for a case study here, it's interesting how they need to do take quite radical steps to keep themselves at the edge. And that was, for example, when last year, I think it was 2019 by now, they changed their mission outright to we're in the business of saving the planet or the world. I forgot. I think it's the planet. And that's obviously an outrageous mission. Before they more humbly said, you know, we're trying to do the best not to hurt the environment. Now they say we're there to, to, to save the planet. And right. they gave good reason. They said we cannot wait any longer because the time periods to catastrophe, scientists tell us, have shrunk ever more. We might be looking at that within our lifetime. So there is no more time to wait. We need to become more radical about it. And that's where a lot of other brands fall off. You know, they fall off because they preach environmental sustainability or whatever for, forever. But once nothing has happened, they just die away. And that's where I don't want to name brands, but there's a lot of, you know, fashionable beauty brands and a lot of fashionable household care brands, for example, you know, might get, might fade away and get boring. And before I let you both go, there's been a fascinating episode and I'm going to recommend to our listeners that if you want to purchase Brand Elevation, the book, and learn more about lessons in Uber branding and what we've been discussing today, um, I'll link to that in the show notes and you can find it on Amazon and via the publisher Kogan page. But JP and Wolfgang, before I let you both go, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find out more about you both respectively and your businesses? Perhaps JP, if you want to start. Well, I'll start with the common denominator. You can reach us both at authors at uberbrands.com, and that's spelled with a U-E. And then you can reach me at jp at uberbrands.com if you don't, if you want to cut Wolfgang out of the deal. And then through our books and blog and podcast, etc. I mean, we're pretty public creatures. Yeah. 
And other than that, you can also reach me at my consultancy at Wolf at Zwolf, like Z-W-O-E-L-F consulting.com. But that basically go via Uber Brands and that's always the best way to reach us. I love blogs and podcasts and everything. And you, I, I hope by now you've seen our love for the German umlaut. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I don't think it's a problem at all. I don't think you paid any price for that. I think it's perfectly reasonable. Um, thank you so much again for your time. This has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.